Hello and welcome to the Employment Group podcast and I'm Adam Williams and today we're going to be talking about potential changes and some changes that are already tabled to come in in relation to flexible working. It's been about 15 years since the concept of the statutory right to request to work flexibly was introduced. It's pro probably fair to say that most employers are pretty familiar with it, but there's always been a sense amongst many employers and workers, I think, that it's something of a right without teeth, uh, enabling the employer to refuse a request, so long as it goes through the motion, so to speak. Uh, but we've seen some seismic changes to working patterns of many as a result, partly of the pandemic and um, partly because of um, changes to the way that everybody works and the gig economy developing, etc. And now we have a consultation paper revisiting the issue of flexible working and the extent of the workers' right to work flexibly that comes in uh, uh, following on from um, some changes that have already been announced in relation to this area by the government. So we're going to talk about what the changes are that we already know about and that are coming in. We'll talk about what the other potential changes might look like. And we'll also touch on um, whether, irrespective of any change to the underlying legislation, there are things that we all need to be doing as employers and HR professionals now to ensure our approach and policies around this area actually reflect the realities of our workplace that may be very materially changed um, as a result of other changes in the last few years. So with me to discuss the future of flexible working are Rustam Tata, partner and head of the employment group at DMH Dallard. Uh, Rustam has a wealth of experience advising businesses and organisations in complex employee relations issues, and that includes changes to working practices. And Greg Burgess, who a partner in the DMA Stallard Employment Group as well. And Greg advises businesses on, of all shapes and sizes and across multiple sectors on their staffing issues. And in the context of flexible working, um, these businesses have a wide variety of approaches to flexible working requests. So there's a really good relevant experience there that I'm sure Greg can bring. And actually, Greg, I hear you have a reasonably amusing example recently that you were going to share with us of uh, a flexible working issue. Re reasonably amusing. I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> managing expectations for the listeners. Absolutely. Uh, no, well, we see all sorts of different requests for all sorts of different reasons, but I did have a, a client recently who has a, a factory and their production manager who runs a factory and the team of people in the factory. He put in a flexible working request because he wanted to work from home, even though he's got to run a team of people in a factory. Yeah. And his reason for making the request was that he felt that he could do more at home and his words were because after working in this company for almost 15 years i am tired of this place and the people which isn't necessarily the most persuasive argument for an employer to um, to hear but anyway uh, needless to say i think his um flexible working request was rejected um but yes um quite unusual uh quite unusually uh, honest opinion from from their worker Indeed, uh, your your uh, intuition will have told you there might be some something of a bigger problem going on there, Greg. I thought for the for the employer. Yeah, there, there was a broader conversation to be had for sure. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, Rustin, we, we start with you then. Let's get straight into it. Employers are pretty familiar with flexible working legislation, as I said at the off. But um, just in case there are any myths out there that need busting, um, can you sum up what what it provides in terms of rights and obligations at present? 
Well, thanks, Adam. Yeah, so what, what we have at the moment is we've got some amending legislation that has received royal assent, but we are just waiting for a, what's called a commencement date. So in other words, when it actually sort of comes into force. And um, so what we're looking at essentially is rather than the employee having to wait uh, 26 weeks before they can put a request in and only being able to put one request in, that they'll be able to put two requests in in any 12-month period. Mm. Um, the employer will need to come to a decision currently. They need to come to a decision within three months. That will reduce down to two. Okay. Um, the employer is required to consult with the employee before refusing a request. There's an interesting point there about if they're going to accept the request, whether or not they actually need to have a meeting. Um, and finally, the employee no longer has to explain what effect uh, the, the changes or the proposed changes will have on the employer and how those changes might be dealt with. That was something which the uh, employee, strictly under the current legislation, that's just about to go, as I say, um, has, to, um, has to give that explanation. Do you think that last bit's a good thing, Rustam? I've always felt that that was something of a strange kind of slightly strained process where the employer is telling, sorry, the employee is telling the employer what the operational impact might be, regardless of their seniority within the business. And it's like, well, I've, yeah, I've looked, I've looked at the way the team's structured and how the how the finances work, and this is it. Always did certainly in some occasions, it's been appealed to me as striking a bit odd. It's really interesting, isn't it? There you go. You ask two lawyers, you'll get three views. I mean, I, I, I think it's a retrograde step to remove that. I, I do agree with you that it won't always be the case that what the employee can say will necessarily add anything meaningful to the consideration. But I mean, I think if if you have a particular setup and one party is saying, I'd like to change it, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect them to be required to give their take on what the impact of that change would be mm -hmm. uh, and how it could be absorbed. But to the extent that sometimes and probably like all of us seen flexible working requests of all sort of shapes and sizes and, and some perhaps slightly more um, stretching it, if we can put it like that, and others, you know, quite sort of straightforward, but where, where you see them and, and it's a small team and there's clearly going to be impact. And then the employee says, I don't see that's going to have any impact on the employer whatsoever. And, and you just kind of think, well, either you're being disingenuous um, or, or you really don't appreciate how the how the team work together so personally i think it's a retrograde step taking it out but i do take the point that often it, it, it doesn't yeah. add much greg we might find that that kind of dialogue still happens anyway might we even if they remove the the uh, obligation on the employee if, if you've got to consult as russell said in every case then there's going to be a bit of to and fro if that's meaningful on this point of what is the impact because that seems to me to come to the core of whether you can accept or reject yeah, you would have thought it's a natural part of the discussion, isn't it, for yeah. the employee to be showing that they thought about the impact and the employer to discuss the impact. Mm. What we've got to hope we also see, though, is that the employer is actually testing themselves and going off and speaking to other team members about the impact before just forming a conclusion of the impact that it might have. Yeah. And what tribunals like to see is they like to see that there has been that inquiry that's being made. Um, of, for example, other people in the team or, or, or impact on the broader business before the employer jumps to that conclusion, it will have an impact, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But yeah. Take, if you take away a statutory obligation to do something, then don't you give the employee the ability just to say, it's not my problem, it's not a question that you, you should, should expect me to have to answer? I suppose... 
Yeah. Again, maybe I'm just used well, to dealing then, on occasion with particularly difficult employees. I suppose the question then becomes if, if ultimately, hope it never happens, you can get to tribunal, where will the sympathy of the tribunal lie in terms of the employer seeking to effectively communicate and explore whether it can be agreed and the employee just looking like they folded their arms? And you would say that there's some duty there on both sides implied term to, to engage meaningfully. But as you say, yeah, they would go, well, sorry, why was the law changed then to say that I didn't have to do this if I can't just fold my arms? Um, not quite Greg's scenario where they go, but by the way, I hate working here, but, um, you know, not, not the most engaging way of doing it. Um, but yeah, Rust, I'm sticking with you then for the context. Yeah. There's also been, there's a consultation document and there are some potential additional changes, but they're not yet um, established. They haven't got royal assent, have they, if I understand it correctly. Um, What's the consultation on and, and how much of a clear indication does it give us of the direction of travel for any further changes? Yeah, well, um, you, you're right. We're not even close to Royal Assent. We're just on, in fact, two consultation documents just to make things even uh, more exciting. Um, the one, the headline grabber, is the consultation that suggests that when I referred to the 26 weeks continuous service that the employee needed to have, that that will... Uh, fall away and essentially it's being termed that it would be a, a day one right for an employee to make the request um so literally uh, as and when they start and, and that raises some potential practical issues in terms of how that might operate um that that that's the that that's the big one but the other uh, uh consultation that's going through is around the revisions to the acas code of practice in terms of handling uh requests um it's, in my view, a relatively thin consultation. It's somewhat sort of self-serving. It, it, it asks questions like, do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea for there to be consultation between the uh, employer and employee before the employer makes a decision? Well, I think I'm sure all the employers listening to this podcast and, and most of us would be quite quite used to saying, well, of course, there needs to be some some sort of discussion. But I mean, that may be that it's reflective of a concern. And, and there is concern, as you alluded to at the start, Adam, that these rights in some instances are largely ignored or lip services um, is paid to them. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned there, Rustam, is that the potential practical impacts around the right to request from day one, um, which yeah, I can see why you're thinking about the, the impact there from day to day perspective. Do you think it's going to have significant practical implications, for example, in terms of recruitment processes so yes uh, 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 Adam that's right I mean I think it, it's it's not fully worked through in terms of how it will operate in practice I mean will an employer for instance as part of the recruitment process or maybe at the point of offer say ask the prospective uh, employee do you want to make a flexible working request or do you intend to make a flexible working request um, on the one hand, one can see how that might be sensible. So at least the employer knows, rather than have the employee rock up and then put it put the request in on 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 day one. Of course, it's the right to make the request. To be clear, so they'd have to come in on day one, work the hours that they've been contracted to do, and it would only then be after the two month period potentially that would have to change. But yeah. in a lot of roles where perhaps employees are on a month or three months notice, two months isn't necessarily a very long time in order to get. Um, get a replacement in or get uh, somebody who's going to work alongside them if they're going to be sharing hours or or whatever else. So I think there is that practical piece. Of course, there's then the other bit, which says, well, what if the employee says yes? 
what is the employer able to do about it? They say, well, hang on, I thought this was to be a, let's just take it in a standard basis. I thought this was to be a full-time role or these were, this was to be a role working particular hours. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a risk then of a detriment claim if the uh, employer withdraws the offer? for instance, um, or or in some ways, the tone of the communication with the prospective employee changes at that sort of at that point. So I think you can see, uh, and and I'm surprised that there hasn't been more of a clamour by employers against this, to be honest. Um, And the consultation is still open. So employers can can do that. But I mean, um, most employers would say, well, look, I'm looking to recruit, that's what I want to recruit. And okay, I accept that during the life cycle of an employment, the employee's personal circumstances may change. They may need to make a flexible working request and not try and accommodate it. It seems a little bit odd to be saying, well, I'll advertise a role, you'll apply for a role, we'll talk about a role on a particular basis. And then day one, essentially, you can say, I want to change those, uh, I want to change those working arrangements. Yeah, I mean, Greg, we're going to talk about tribunals, aren't we, and how these things can go wrong. And there's always the spectre of broader discrimination rights underlying this area, because you're always in the territory of criterion or practice when you're saying this is our approach to how we staff this area of the organisation, et cetera. But I mean, on that point that Rustin's just raised, I wonder whether do you whether you think, I'm thinking in my mind, does this take us to a place where the employer, where they know it would be an issue, have to go much further? You know, we already do the obvious one, like your continued employment's conditional on you having the right to work, thinking of my immigration hat on. Will they go much further in going, look, this role is conditional upon it being done in this way and that way. These are all the particular reasons why we're getting in, in we're getting in first and setting out the context to why if you get in and two months later raise a flexible working request, you, you wouldn't be reasonably expecting it to be approved if it's in this sort of form. Do you think that that's where we'll go with it to try and show our workings in advance? Or maybe employers won't, as Russell said, not many, not many employers have pushed back on it yet. Maybe they'll they'll sleepwalk into it. That might be the, the more worrying thing. I think it depends on what the request will be. You know, if, if in a sort of crude example, an employer wants to fill a full-time post and they offer to a, to an individual who then says, well, I can, you know, I want to make a request to work part, you know, 20 hours per week or something like that, then I think a tribunal will have some sympathy for the employer who then rejects the flexible working request because they made it clear at the outset that it was a full-time yeah. post needed filling if the yeah. flexible working request is around for example a change of you know i want to work from home more than you currently allow and let's say for example the reason for that is because they have some particular i don't know caring responsibility or a disability mm-hmm. um, then it may be slightly harder for the employer and that's where the sort of robustness of the employer's onboarding process should allow them to identify and address those sorts of things that might crop up if for example let's see let's say they need to make an adjustment because of a disability hopefully yeah. through the interview and recruitment and onboarding process that would be drawn out they can address it and if they turn around and say we can't make that adjustment we can't um, agree to your request then um, hopefully a tribunal would stand by the employer in, in making that decision yeah yeah, it's interesting because it, yeah, we we'll see we we'll see how it develops and what quite a tight labour market the recruitment process is. I hear from employer clients of mine, it can be quite frenetic, and you find someone who can fit the job, and you move very quickly to secure them before they find something else. And so, how yeah. easy that will be initially, I don't know, but maybe that may be a trend that we see. So, 
Um, on the on the processing and dealing with these requests side of things, Greg, lots of employers won't be particularly daunted at the thought of having to consult with staff about about flexible working proposals. But it's an area that can lead, as we've said, even if it's just indirectly to tribunal hearing room if if things don't go well. What what approach do I mean, we're talking in general terms, so not easy, but what approach do tribunals take to flexible working? Are, are there other types of claims that can arise? Yeah, so uh, there is a claim that can arise under the legislation for failing to properly consider a flexible working request, and that's under the flexible working regulations, which inserted a new section into the Employment Rights Act of 1996. Now, uh, the claim that can be made under the Employment Rights Act can lead to a tribunal ordering an employer to reconsider the request and can lead to the tribunal ordering um, compensation of up to eight weeks pay. So that's not a significant risk for an employer. And that's why certainly in my 20 plus years of practicing employment law, I haven't seen a claim under that section. What I have seen though, and what we see quite frequently is discrimination claims, which arise from a consideration, often a rejection of a flexible working request. And that's where the risk and that's where um, employers need to be on their toes. So just to give an example, um, a case I dealt with uh, about 15 years ago was now involved a, an employer based at Heathrow Airport, a ground handling company. And they had a lady who worked as one of their uh, shift managers. And uh, she went on maternity leave to have her second child. When she came back from maternity leave, she put in a flexible working request saying that because of my childcare responsibilities, I can no longer work your 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 shift pattern. It was a fixed rotating shift pattern or on or off uh, and so forth. She said, because I've, I've got a child, I've in the primary childcare um, in our in our relationship, and therefore I want to make a flexible working request. And the way she uh, then presented that to the tribunal was as an indirect sex discrimination claim. And what the tribunal said was that there was a, uh, a provision criterion of practice, and that was the requirement to work fixed rotational shifts. Um, and it disproportionately affected female employees because they were primary child carers. And uh, the employer was unable to justify why imposing that requirement in this particular circumstance um was uh, justifiable and so the claim for indirect sex discrimination for um, this lady called mrs garcia bello um, was successful and that's where we see often flexible working requests go in the context of tribunal claims we also see claims by disabled employees who um, require a reasonable adjustment to their working pattern um, and it's quite clear from the hrc's statutory code of practice um, does state quite clearly that for disabled employees, a reasonable adjustment can be to um, consider flexible working. So I've talked about discrimination. I've talked about um, reasonable adjustments claims. Uh, an employee can resign and claim constructive dismissal. And there's clear case law that a resignation in response to a rejection of a flexible working request can give rise to a successful claim for constructive dismissal. Yeah. Um, and often where employers trip themselves up is around the reasoning for rejecting a flexible working request. When I look at draft outcome letters for employers, I've, a number of times over the years, I've seen 
uh, reasons given where you select three or four of these statutory reasons for rejecting. And when you actually probe a bit deeper, it might only be one or two reasons is actually the real reason, but an employer thinks, well, let's put everything down as much as we can down and try and align to those reasons. Yeah. The trick is to, be, to, to keep, it, keep it short, keep it focused on the actual reasons for rejecting. That, that really resonates with me because what you were saying there around the equality legislation points to, you were really, you were talking about objective justification which you're, you're just making a decision within the structures of the flexible working process, aren't you? But what you're ultimately having to show is we have a legitimate aim in operating in the way we do as the context for our rejection and rejection of this individual in the circumstances is a proportionate means of achieving it. And I've seen the same thing, Greg, definitely. The employer can end up just going, well, we've got three out of the list on the statutory list there. We just put them down. They are true. We do want to ensure customer service delivery is excellent. They're not thinking yes, but is the impact on the individual rejecting their request proportionate in pursuing that aim? You know, what, what is the real uh, aim here? Um, and and I, I, I think you're with me from what you said in my mind, that is actually, well, as the legislation currently stands, often the more important area than the list in the legislation of the potentially, the list of named reasons, it's actually does it look ostensibly proportionate in pursuing your aim? Because it's not that hard. You must have seen a lot. It's not that hard. I say hard, that's a cynical, gives away a cynic, but I'll put it another way. Oftentimes, there will be an underlying angle to say there's discrimination issue here. I've got childcare responsibilities. I have a disability, as you say. So, you, you know, more often than not, you will be thinking about those things. I think tribunals, you know, obviously they're always mindful of the size and the resources of the employer. In in my example, you had a reasonably large employer, mm. several hundred employees working at Heathrow. And I think the tribunal probably felt that there was a certain level of intransigence on the part of this employer because they weren't able to be flexible to accommodate that particular individual. Mm. Um, a larger employer probably um, can be more flexible it would be, um, I think a tribunal would form that view. Um, yeah. Whereas they might be more sympathetic to a smaller employer who can't shuffle staff around, who can't change working patterns quite so easily. I think that those are factors as well. Yeah, that's really helpful. I've um, just got to jump in there if that's okay. I mean, I think it's really interesting, this discussion, but I mean, if you have a larger employer with a larger team, there are more people impacted by one person saying, we, we want to change things. So does, for instance, I'll just put it out there, does, for instance, a larger employer periodically say to all of its employees, does there, you know, anybody who wants to put a flexible working request in, put it in now, you have a window in which to put it in, we'll then have a window to see what we can make work. Um, you know, is that a, is that a, something either of you have ever come across or, or something that you think would make sense? Because you, you can see, yes, in, in a notionally, and it's always been said, and obviously we, we're used to size and administrative resources being key in ordinary unfair dismissal claims, but actually ha having more employees impacted and disrupted by somebody that wants to change it is, I think, impactful there. And you can also see how it can lead to to bad feeling amongst sort of fellow fellow employees so i don't, I don't know yeah, it's I mean, just, I, it's... i've never not seen it done in a, in, a, in a formal way like that but it does go to an issue that sometimes comes up we might talk about this in terms of what do we mean by consistency of approach because when we talk about discrimination of course we, we talk often about 
you need to be consistent. But that doesn't mean you have to say yes to the same request when you get it a second or a third time, because the fact that you've granted it twice already might be the reason why you can't grant it the third time. But that creates the perceived unfairness in part of not having that window where the third person requests and says, well, you know, Jane and Bob have both been approved for this request and I'm being told no, that can't be right. And the employer says, well, I'm afraid the circumstances were sufficient to us to grant for those two, but having a third person doing it doesn't work. Um, how's that gonna make that individual feel about Jane and Bob or indeed the HR team? But how many employers are gonna invite in the way that you've described? I don't know, Greg, what you think about that to say, you know, an annual window or whatever to, so that you do get the broader picture. Well, I think I think the broader point with flexible working now is it's moved on so so far from where it was 15, 20 years ago. 15, 20 years ago, it was um, employers dealing with ad hoc requests. Yeah. Um, and now it's a whole cultural piece, isn't it? It's not just about flexible working applications as we're talking about and changes to the process. You know, employers want to have, try and you know, develop and, and foster a culture of flexibility um, because they know, you know, in the battle for talent, it's so important to attract people and flexibility is, is often a key part of that. Um, yeah. So I think there's, you know, it's just evolved so much, the whole concept of flexible working to a point where now it is an expectation uh, more than just a right. Yeah, well, you've picked up really helpfully there on a point I wanted to, I wanted to take your temperatures on, you, you obviously day to day, you're working with employers, seeing how they're operating, how they're managing this. On Greg's point, we've gone through massive change, particularly in the last few years around COVID and higher discretion in many companies on how and where you can work at differing degrees, clearly, within different teams and organisations. There's also different sectors where that may be not possible at all, like shop workers. Rustam, starting with you, do you think employers have already adapted in a way that makes them ready for these reforms and the shift in, in approach we're talking about? Or are we in reality still catching up? with ourselves in terms of actually what the working world looks like now and the expectations of employees in what is a, a present, a tighter labour market. Well, I think Greg makes a really good point um, in that this is part of a the, the, where we started in terms of just looking at the changes to the specific flexible working legislation mm -hmm. is really just the just just the start it, it's almost the you know the finger on the hand as it were but um i think that wider change those wider changes that you talk about in terms of expectation i mean there's lots of chat at the moment in the general press about the 85 percent and saying you know that's that's as much as i'm prepared to give to my employer on, on any day and and actually i want to give less than that and of course there's a maybe a clash of working cultures maybe a clash of generations there in terms of the, the the expectation but Adam also I think it's absolutely right to recognize that it's very easy in this context to think about flexible working flexible working requests ability to go and work remotely from the beach or whatever as as though that is what is happening in the overwhelming majority of employments it isn't because if we look at where the, the huge numbers of employees continue to be employed they are in time and location 
sensitive roles. You talked about retail, obviously hospitality. You, you, you have to be there when you're there and you have to be in the place where, 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 where you're required. You can't say, actually, I want to work remotely or at this day I want to work uh, at home because, you know, the delivery is coming or, or, or whatever. So I think what we're seeing is a, a further, further kind of polarisation of the looking at it macro scale almost of the kind of employment market um and those employments with employees where they have a relative degree of discretion over what they do and how they do it and then that's now being extended to where and when they do it Mm -hmm. and at the other end um and i think i know you want to come on also to we will come on i'm sure just to the other consultation looking at the gig economy um, and now the consultation in the context of, I guess, on the back of some of the, the, the things that came out of the Taylor report, you know, what are we going to do or what are the changes to be made for those on zero hours uh, contracts? The one change that came in a few years ago was the ban on exclusivity clauses, clauses if yeah. somebody was in a, a zero hours contract. But so I think there's that increasing polarisation. And as I say, whilst it's important for lots of employees, it's not the case it's going to imply across all sectors and for everyone. Yeah, I mean, just quickly, it's not for us to opine as lawyers, I suppose, but you you wonder whether we've talked about effects on the labour market and the inability of employers to find um, people to fill certain roles. And that could feed into it that people are looking at those roles where they've got to get, get on a bus and turn up each day and go, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather do one of these many other types of jobs, although they're fewer in number, where... I can work from my uh, my kitchen table or whatever. Um, I mean, an- anecdotally, uh, um, certainly in the immediate sort of COVID aftermath or even in relative sort of early days, there was definitely a sense that some people who'd been in those employments where they were absolutely kind of chained to the workplace at specific times were, were looking to move to roles which just gave a degree of flexibility and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And of course, we've got AI coming in that maybe, who knows whether that's fueling the, the the change or whether it's it's having to through necessity fill the gap if we have fewer and fewer people doing what roles that, that would otherwise require a human being there in the in the room. But yeah, I did I did want to pick up on the the stable pattern sort of point, Russ, if we can put it that way. Yeah, because it's almost the inverse of this, isn't it? It's, this is all about empowering workers in one way or another to be able to make requests and have them prop, have it properly heard. That's a gross generalisation, but that's on on the flip side saying this is where they don't want flexibility. They want certainty. And actually, for some employers, that may be more challenging where they've wanted to have patch or pattern, whatever you want to call it. And in fact, their, their, their demand for their need for people is such that that's actually economically the only way they can really make it work. And they're going to be, you know, forgetting the inverse of a flexible work request saying, no, I want you to commit. So yeah, there's absolutely. not a question in there, is there? I'm just, I mean, no. it, it is a bit like no, no. that. You're just sort of pondering how that's going to work. Well, I think there is a question in there, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there's the, on, on the one hand, there is the paradox of a swathe of employees having, I suppose, increased rights, increased ability, increased expectation, and, and employers largely yielding to that. At the mm. other end, you've got those people who are in, I suppose in 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 old money, very uh, unstable, precarious employment relationships without any particular right. Uh, they might have an expectation of work, but they've got no right of work. Um, and of course, that feeds to to to, to income. So the 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 
consultation around the right to be able to make a request um, for, uh, as it were, formal hours of work, formal formal terms when when they will be paid, irrespective then of whether or not the employer has actually got work for them to do at that point. Um, that 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 is a that is quite a change. Although in many ways the proposal doesn't go anything like as far as the Taylor review, which at the time, of course, most people were criticising and not going far enough. But one of the things, for instance, Taylor review said is that if somebody is on these sorts of irregular hours, that they should receive compensation if their working hours are cancelled at short notice. Yeah. So they were expecting to work, expecting therefore to be paid, and and then the employer says, "Sorry, actually, I don't, I, I, I don't need you." And that, I mean, uh, sticking my neck out, that in principle, that seems like a pretty sensible suggestion. I mean, in a way, the stable pattern suggestion is 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 great in its in its neatness. It's very a very neat solution. But query how easy it is to actually apply, Greg, in practice. The the, the difficulty may be that the practical reality is it's not easy for many employers to uh, to grant that request. I touched on you know the pressures economically of having a workforce that you have to pay even if you don't need them and some of the pandemic issues have, 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 have sort of leaned in on that made that more apparent with um service industry quiet times of the month um sometimes not predictable so probably maybe maybe it sits somewhere in between these two um stable on one side and flexible on the other greg a lot of noise i mean it always get, grabs headlines because it's 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 an easy one to to understand the concept of, I guess, as, as, as readers of the newspapers or whatever, um, the four-day week. How much, there's been a lot of talk about companies embracing that. Uh, has that really happened? And and if so, how successful has it been? Have you you had any clients that have been trialing it or or heard anything around? I don't have any clients, I must admit, um, who have taken part in any sorts of trials. Uh, and I'm not sure across our group that I've heard of any of um, you know our fellow partners who are dealing with clients who have moved to a four-day week. I may be wrong. Um, what there was, the noise in the press last year, certainly the second half of last year, was around a pilot study, which was run by this campaign group called the Four Day Week Global. Yes. Um, and, and the pilot study was a six-month study, which had around 60 companies taking part, which was about 3,000 employees in total. Yeah, um, and it ran in the second half of 2022. Uh, the results were quite interesting and quite positive. Um, of the 61 companies that took part, 56 either extended the trial beyond the six months or they made it a permanent change. Now, of course, it's only going to work for certain companies in certain certain sectors. Of course, yeah. it doesn't work necessarily in a service uh, sector. Um, employer because you're, you're you're meeting the demands of your plants and that may not work for a four day week but certainly the the results were were pretty positive for those companies that took part yeah that's interesting i think i think um it's a fairly broad number it's quite a fairly decent number of employees but as you say maybe sort of slightly sector specific um but they, yeah, the the productivity side of things was quite telling wasn't it and interesting coming out of that um, yeah. And maybe it goes to this issue of, uh, I mean, if you think of our sector, the legal sector, going into the pandemic, we probably, as a sector, made a number of assumptions about what could or couldn't be done from home. 
and that certain things simply couldn't be done from home. But then the mother of all invention, necessity, said, close, close all the offices and go home and actually things could be done. And I suppose there's a bit there. I'll, I'll ask for both of your takes on what employers should do to best prepare themselves for these requests and the evolution in this area. But it it's almost sounds trite, but it's important to be seen not to have made assumptions, I think, about what could or couldn't work. All the more so if there's an underlying discrimination issue and detriment. But that's my take. But what, what for each of you to close the discussion, which thank you both, it's been really interesting. What's your what's your suggestion or tip to our listeners as employers, HR professionals, as something they can focus on to best position themselves for the challenges of flexible working requests. Greg, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, well, look, this comes through from the case law over the last 15 or 20 years. You know, the, the employers need to start from a positive perspective, you know, rather than focusing on the reasons why it can't work. They need to be focusing on the reasons why it could work and to be open-minded about looking at alternative solutions if it can't work, having a genuine consultation with the individual and potentially with others in the team or in the business that are effective, and, and to use trial periods um, to assess it where they can. These are things that the case law has drawn out over the last 15 to 20 years, and they will remain in the, you know, in the newer world of flexible working. Um, very, very important. And that's what I think, you know, I can see the direction of travel continuing to go. And to be honest, most employers are already pretty good at this stuff, it seems to me, and because they have to be. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm with you 100%, Greg. You've got my vote. Rustam, are you going to go so far as to say employers should now, on your idea earlier in the discussion, they should open up a window of time each year for certain teams to get their requests in? Well, I, I think that would make some sense. It's a bit like the holidays, you know, when people book holidays and you have the same people in the teams always booking the same periods and that can cause uh, sort of dissatisfaction. I, I mean, I think I, I, I agree with Greg in terms of that sense of direction of travel, although I'd caveat it that it, that was is in certain industries and certain sectors. Um, I think it's probably in that context, there's two things. One is making sure that the processes are sufficiently robust. Uh, and I think in the context of, for instance, the changes to the actual uh, flexible working um, legislation, that reduction in time for consideration um, and response in relation to a request moving down from three months to two months, that's obviously important that that's factored in. It's a very practical thing. I think at the same time, there's obviously an increasing push on uh, employers to look at and dare I say it be seen to be looking at um, changes maybe flexing the, the the working arrangements and the working model for their for their staff although that's probably then a more long-term uh, change yeah thank you there's lot, lots of food for thought there that was a really um, helpful and interesting discussion we've got some changes we know still to take proper shape but um, really good overview of, of the ones we know are coming in and revisiting some issues which probably we're recognizing have always been there um, and will continue to be important. So thank you both. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Rustin, for your time today. I'm sure we'll see you again on a future session. Everybody um, listening, you can find more information on our website. As you know, you can follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on LinkedIn, and we'll look forward to uh, another session and having you join us very soon. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.